Welcome to Better Angels, the podcast for women creating change. I'm Susan Ferry Price, and each week I have a conversation with a woman who is helping make our world a little bit better. Thanks for joining us. So my love of coffee, tea, blueberries, turmeric, so many of the foods and drinks I have pretty much every day have been really hard on my teeth. But my teeth are also super sensitive, so whitening products have been an absolute no-go. So I was thrilled, though still pretty skeptical, when I heard that Bite launched a whitening system that was gentle enough for sensitive teeth. But for me, it actually worked with no more irritation. And like all of Bite's products, including their brilliant toothpaste tubes that come in glass jars instead of those plastic tubes that wind up in landfills, the whitening gel is, uses clean ingredients, no harsh chemicals, and is plastic-free, so it's good for me and good for the earth. Learn more at trybite.com. It is pretty impossible right now to be alive and not to really understand that sitting back and just watching the news is not going to create a world that we want to live in or even can continue to live in. But sometimes you don't know exactly how to get started or how to be an effective activist. Today's guest, Eileen Flanagan, traces her activist awakening to the year she spent as a volunteer in Botswana during apartheid. But it wasn't until Eileen was in her late 40s that she started to find her voice as a climate activist and then began teaching others how to effectively advocate for change. Eileen was raised a Catholic but later became a Quaker, and she's now campaign director for the Earthquaker Action Team. And before the 2020 election, she was trainings coordinator for Choose Democracy and helped train 10,000 people in nonviolent strategies to help prevent a potential coup. She's the author of several books and teaches both in-person and online trainings. Here's our conversation. Both went to the same college. We both went to Duke and at around the same time, didn't know each other. Um, But why don't you take us a little bit through your path after that? Uh, I was the first person in my immediate family to go to college. So I think I had this feeling like I should go make a lot of money, but that really only lasted a semester (laughs) senior year. (laughs) And uh, the draw of the Peace Corps was very strong. Uh, And so I ended up spending two and a half years in Southern Africa, which was a fantastic experience. And then from there went to Yale and got a master's in African studies. So at that point I was thinking about becoming an academic But um, actually, the sexism and racism at Yale helped cure me of that desire. (laughs) But I think that the seed of the Peace Corps was partly that when I started learning about climate change, I learned how disproportionately it was affecting countries like the one I had been a Peace Corps volunteer in, which has done very little to contribute to climate change, but is really going to be unbearably hot, like parts of the country you just can't live in. Um, I learned that the farmers can't predict when to plant seeds because the rains are no longer predictable. Things like that were were part of what spurred it. Uh, After that first job, I actually mostly didn't have uh, activist jobs. I did more teaching and writing, um, but it was always sort of like a hobby. And then I got, frankly, worn out from being ineffective. Um, I, I kind of say the bush years took it out of me. Um, I had young kids at that point. I brought my kids to so many peace rallies uh, and marches to try and prevent the invasion of, uh, well, the bombing of Afghanistan and then the invasion of Iraq. 
And we were just at this rally where people were giving speeches to each other, basically. And my daughter looked up at me and said, mom, this is not going to change George Bush's mind. Could we go get ice cream? And I was like, you're right. (laughs) Your analysis is very sound. And so I think during that phase, I like really kind of pulled away from it. But as the kids started getting older, and as I said, as I started learning more about climate change, that was when that fire kind of came back. And it was like, no, I really need to do something. And at that point, I was exposed to the whole field of study about what actually works. And I realized that the reason I had gotten so discouraged was I kept going to things that weren't going to make a difference as my daughter so accurately assessed. Um, And so then once I found things that had a chance of making a difference, I found that my ability to sustain it was much, much different. One of the things when these kind of moments hit me, and I think a lot of people, especially recently, we do do the things that sort of don't seem effective, putting aside the social media rage. But, um, you know, we go to marches, which, you know, may help a little bit in visibility, but I don't know. But, and the other thing that I do um, instantly is I find groups that do this and make a donation. But after that, I really don't know what to do. Yeah. Well, let me just start by saying another word about marches since you brought that up. Um, I think marches, part of what shifted for me was understanding what the purpose of something is. And so when there's like a Supreme Court decision, for example, that you don't like, or an election that you don't like, or something like that, um, or sometimes an act of violence in your community, there is this human impulse to gather and to want to be together. And I don't want to poo-poo that. I just want people to be clear you're, fear, you're there for your emotional well-being more than you're there to make an impact because that tactic is not going to undo the Supreme Court decision or the election or the thing that you're upset about in most cases. It's an emotional bond, you know, something that we do need, but it's not going to bring about systemic change. Right. And so once I was clear about that, then I didn't feel discouraged when nothing happened after the march. Now, the exception, the great exception, which I think made a lot of us put faith in marches, is the 1963 March on Washington, right? That was the first time that hundreds of thousands of people came down to the Capitol and filled up the grass and all. But the thing was, those people were people who were campaigning in an ongoing way in their own communities before the march and after the march, So in that kind of case, a march can be a moment of people feeling their collective power, but it's not the thing itself. It's like, (laughs) it's like a chance to weave the threads together, but what makes change is always sustained effort. Um, or almost always there are moments when like a big march might make an impact. And I would say the march after Trump's election did cast a shadow over his presidency. He didn't accomplish nearly as much in the first year as he wanted to, in part because every time he announced something terrible, people showed up. 
but people didn't know that that was making a difference. And so they stopped showing up and he got more and more effective over the years. So in terms of your question, what makes a difference? Geez, not everybody needs to do the same thing. But one of the tools that I found really helpful comes out of the research of a sociologist named Bill Moyer, not to be confused with the PBS guy, Bill Moyers. Um, Bill Moyer studied successful social change movements and realized that there were four roles that showed up again and again. Um, and we call them the helper, the advocate, the organizer, and the rebel. So the helper is just trying to meet immediate need without taking on the system. So that's the person who tutors in the schools because the funding for teacher assistance has been cut or the person who serves soup to the homeless or, or things like that. Um, the advocate is trying to change the system, but using the tools of the system. So um, petitions, writing letters, talking to your congressperson, working on elections. And what we see is that is the role that many of us were taught to play. And we think that's the only one. Um, and it does matter, but it's kind of like, you know, a baseball team that's only got a first baseman. <laughs> like if, if everyone is doing that strategy, it's not enough. Um, so the other two are the organizer and the rebel. Now the rebel is trying to make change by challenging the system. So instead of meeting with your congressperson, they might block the hallway in front of the congressperson's office or take on a corporation or do civil disobedience or boycotts or other kinds of disruptive tactics. Um, and then the, the other role is the organizer. And that is the person that organizes that big march or brings people together in coalitions. And what we can see from whether it's the civil rights movement or the movement for women's votes or the LGBT movement or the, you know, ACT UP, um, you know, working on AIDS funding, like, and, and around the world, you can see the people who really make the biggest difference have different people playing those different roles. And instead of competing with each other, they play to their strengths. Um, so that, you know, the congressperson who's getting lobbied is more likely to listen when somebody's blocking their hallway, for example. So are those different roles within, say, one community group? Or are those roles played by different groups within a community or within an issue? Because I'm also thinking about, you know, some of those roles like the helper, the advocate, those are frequently roles played by uh, women, women who are volunteering, um, which maybe is very different than professional, you know, advocates or organizers as well. So how does all this work together on an issue? Yeah, I think those are great questions. So um, you can have those different personalities within a group, but in terms of movements, it really works better when different organizations have different niches, I would say. So like in the civil rights movement, for example, um, the NAACP was like doing lawsuits while the students were over here doing sit-ins, right? Um, and they were all part of the same movement, and sometimes they argued about tactics, but it was really the combination of things that moved them forward. 
It's interesting what you said about women, because I do think the helper and the advocate are the two things that we've been told are most socially acceptable. Like you can do them politely. In fact, politeness is a, um, is a benefit when you're going in to meet your member of Congress as an advocate. For me, who went to 10 years of all-girl Catholic school and got a lot of that conditioning, um, moving into the rebel role was a challenge to that conditioning. But it's actually been really empowering. The most empowering thing, I think, ever was joining an organization that uses rebel tactics, that uses civil disobedience. We interrupt corporate shareholder meetings. And I've realized in myself all the training to be polite and how that gets in the way. I mean, I work on climate change, which is going to kill hundreds of millions of people. Like we we're way past just being polite about it. We have to make corporations and politicians realize the stakes. Right. That's, that's just completely true. And also Catholic school veteran here. Um, but I think it also is built into, from what I've seen of school systems, like it's, it's, this is how you, and that's your contribution. You volunteer and some schools even have volunteering as, you know, something students or even companies, you know, go volunteer here and get a day off or whatever. That kind of socially acceptable activism is very built into our system. And a lot of people will leave it at that. Absolutely. Just look at MLK days of service. Martin Luther King Jr. got famous for leading a boycott, for getting arrested, and for organizing people. But we celebrate his birthday by, you know, delivering food to the homeless or, you know, these service acts that don't really get at the spirit of what he was doing. So how did you personally make that leap and feel more confident to become more of a rebel? I think it was really serendipity. I had been kind of looking around for something to do. I had gone to a meeting or two. Um, I had been doing a lot of individual things like carrying my reusable bottle and feeling like if the world is dependent on me reducing my carbon footprint, we're just really in big trouble. And then I um, stumbled across this group uh, from my own community that was doing rebel action. And I immediately sent felt the power of it. Um, the group is called Earthquaker Action Team or Equate. And um, their first campaign was targeting PNC Bank. Um, PNC bragged about being a green bank, but they were one of the biggest financiers of mountaintop removal coal mining. And um, so the first action that I just stumbled onto by accident, they were at the Philadelphia Flower Show where PNC was the major corporate sponsor and they had gone in front of the PNC display and had put crime scene tape around it. And this group of pe people are singing, where have all the flowers gone in the middle of the flower show? <laughs> and security was like trying to like, you know, figure out what to do with them. Um, but they had this sort of joy and confidence. And I joined after that. And then we won. A few years later, we got this $4 billion a year bank to change a policy that they didn't want to change because of a small group of people showing up persistently and boldly and creatively. What's interesting about that. So, you know, I used to live in New York City. Now I live in California. But you're always seeing small groups protesting something. And even very liberal people I know 
have a tendency to think of those protesters, especially corporate protesters, as, you know, being very fringy and ineffective. Like, what is this helping that you're blocking the sidewalk when, you know, so-and-so is trying to get into the office? Yeah, and I think that um, there's a couple of things groups can do to be more effective. Um, one is to just not do the same thing every time, because if you're always passing the same five people (laughs) with the same five signs, you know, it's easy to think, well, this is going nowhere. Um, and whether it's growing in the number of people you have, or in our case, we grew in the number of States we were working in. We started with a small group of Quakers in Philadelphia. And then, um, a few years later, we were able to have an action that was 30 locations, 30 different banks in 13 different states. And that's the sort of thing that if you walk by one, it looks <laughs> inconsequential. But if you're the CEO and you say, oh, my gosh, this group is growing. We also got into the news, uh, which makes a difference. So like the flower show story, there was media covering the flower show. So then we got on the local NPR story about it and we got in the local paper about it and things like that. I also, um, this is maybe not for everyone, but I really believe in the power of people of faith speaking from that position. Um, so if people walk by and it's like, you know, a group of rabbis and priests together, that catches their eye in a different way. I think. And for us as Quakers, we don't have the garb, but we would often do actions that were prayer actions, which I think makes it just a little harder for people to dismiss us as crazies. I'm, I, I don't find that shouting is very effective. I think if you shout, then everybody ignores you. Um, but if you can do something more creative or really speak to people, we would sometimes go and have like a silent prayer action where other people were really moved by it. Um, Not that that's the thing that changes the CEO's mind, but it's a different dynamic than what you're describing. When I would see that to me, it's like these people genuinely believe in something rather than they're protesting against something. As a Quaker, your tradition is that you believe in protecting the land or or wherever you're coming from with that belief. It has a different energy. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think the other switch in learning to think strategically um, is like, like I said at the beginning, like there are actions you go to just to express your own feelings, but we actually were there because we thought carefully about what does this bank care about? And it cares about its brand. It's part of the reason that many more people are now protesting banks around climate change rather than coal companies. Coal companies don't care about their brand. They don't care how many people hate them as long as they get the permit, Right. Um, or the pipeline company building the tar sands pipeline or the oil refinery, whatever, like Exxon, their business model is not about their public image being warm and fuzzy, but a bank's is, you know, or right now we're campaigning against Vanguard. Vanguard cares a lot (laughs) about its reputation. And so there's a vulnerability there. 
I, that surprises me a little bit about the Vanguard because I, I didn't know that. And I have a, I have a positive association with Vanguard. So I did have to kind of step back when I saw that that was one of your, and I'm like, Oh, what are they up to that? I didn't know. So it did affect me. Yeah. Right. And, and so in the case of Vanguard, they brag about being owned by their customers. So we're not trying to just say bad things about them. We're trying to get their customers to call them up and say, you know what, you, you're saving your money for the future, possibly for your, your children. Like don't, we care about climate change too. We don't want you to invest our money in a way that is destroying the future we're saving for. In the case of the PNC example, did you eventually have an actual sit down meeting? How did that actually get the results in the end? Yeah, that's a great question. We usually start by asking for a sit down meeting. Um, and we did in that campaign have one with the regional directors, um, at the end of the campaign, by the time we had built more pressure, there was another group that was playing the advocate role. And so that organization was able to sort of have the discussions about what would a policy change look like and push them along the way. There was also another group that were socially responsible investors that included people of faith, including the Quaker organization that does that. So we knew that other people were playing that role with the CEO of, you know, expressing like, yes, you need to change your policy and who could talk on the policy level. And so our group didn't need to play that role in that situation. Um, but uh, one of the things Dr. King said is that the purpose of nonviolent direct action, the kinds of strategies I'm talking about, is not to beat your opponent, but to level the playing field so that that kind of conversation can happen. Um, you know, people criticized King for, you know, the tactics that he used, but he said, we're not on an even playing field. You know, they're not going to sit down and talk to me about desegregation. And you can't do anything if you're not in the room. <laughs> and President Johnson invited King into the room because of the kind of work that they were doing. So then after Trump was in office, your activism, kind of your role shifted and you started to think about training others. So I was still working with Earthquaker Action Team that time as a volunteer. I was on the board for several years um, and the board chair for five um, but the other thing that happened, I had learned so much working with this group that I saw people around me kind of spinning out <laughs> in anxiety about Trump's election and going, oh, my God, what are we going to do? And so I just posted on Facebook, if I taught an online course on kind of how to be more effective, would people take it? And I had like 180 people in the first online class. I had been a guest teacher in someone else's class, so I kind of already knew how to use Zoom. <laughs> but I had never, you know, set up PayPal with my website or any of that. It was a very steep learning curve. Um, but it felt like this moment where people realized, like, we need to do something and just the big march isn't enough. Um, and so that was when I started teaching online. It's about the four roles of social change, about how to look at uh, one concept I teach is called the pillars of power. And it's looking at what keeps a powerful institution uh, able to do what it's doing and what are the other institutions supporting it. So, for example, banks are pillars supporting the fossil fuel industry. It's very hard to go after Exxon um, 
But getting a bank to say, no, we're going to scale back our funding of fossil fuels is actually easier um, because the bank has a much broader business model. Um, and so oftentimes when people want to make change, they don't have a clear analysis of who makes the decision and who do we have leverage over. So I started teaching concepts like that. Um, toward the end of the Trump administration, some of my friends uh, who were reading the news realized like, this guy doesn't want to leave office. You know, the January 6th hearings are kind of made, a lot, they're terrific in lots of ways, but they're kind of making it sound like the plot started on election night. We saw it coming six months in advance, but that whole summer he was saying things that indicated he was not going to accept the election result if it was different than what he wanted. And Daniel Hunter, um, Jenny Marilu, oh gosh, I hope I'm saying her name right. Um, George Lakey and a few others got together and said like, hey, we're trainers. That's our niche. Uh, like we have two purposes. One is to get the word out that a coup attempt is coming. And the other is tra to train people to prepare for it. And so I was hired as the trainings coordinator and we trained like 10,000 people in, um, well, so the pillars of power was one of the tools that we used. Like, what would the president need to do to actually pull off a coup? You know, the military, for example, is a pillar of power. It was pretty clear the military wasn't going to support Trump um, from what we could see. The business community wasn't, they they funded his campaign, but they, they were, weren't really gunning for a coup. Uh, which is bad for business, frankly. <laughs> um, but what about elected officials? What way are they going to go? What about local elected officials, the people doing the vote counting? What about the press? You know, those are all institutions that could be influenced. And so we were encouraging people ahead of the election to call your local elected official and tell them we want to make whatever party you are, whatever party wins, we want you to count every vote. So there was this grassroots effort going on that really hasn't gotten, I think, quite enough credit um, in laying the groundwork. The bigger thing was lots of people getting their minds around the fact that, like, if, if this should be successful, we're going to need to fight back and fight back nonviolently. So um, the trainings were really based on research around countries around the world that have nonviolently defeated coups. What happened in Thailand and the Philippines and, you know, Germany, like at the beginning of the 20th century. And the researchers pulled out four things that um, those successful movements had in common. And then we emphasized those. So, um, for example, one of them is nonviolent discipline. Um, if people go out and start, like, shooting at the army, the army shoots back and the popular movement fails. Um, but if people go out nonviolently and block the tanks, like in the Philippines where nuns and priests were on the front line, so there were things like that that we were doing to kind of help prepare people practically and psychologically. Um, and then there were a lot of groups like unions that were talking about if there was a coup attempt, we would have a general strike. 
um, the flight attendants union was like ready to keep the, the, the planes on the ground. If that happened, there was a lot of grassroots work that we were pretty sure it wouldn't go quite that far, but it went further than a lot of people expected. That's interesting. I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. And, uh, that's, it's, it's sort of comforting, um, but also shows how we have to think ahead because we are, we tend to be reactive to these things and like they seem to come out of nowhere, but of course they don't. Um, and we have to be always, you know, democracy. <laughs> it's like, it's a contact sport. We have to keep playing, you know, you can't do it once. You can't just vote and then forget about it for four years, which is really how we've, many of us have grown up thinking about it. Right. And the other side is definitely thinking ahead about how to get their people into the vote counters next time and things like that. So that example of a role that is normally not a controversial role, the person who just volunteers at the polls is usually like a helper role. But in this kind of situation, it becomes really, really important. And once you've trained in those, all of those tactics and principles can be applied to any issue. The way that I'm thinking about it is what are the things I learned in Choose Democracy that I can incorporate into the way I'm doing climate work? So um, I mentioned nonviolent discipline is one of the keys of uh, defeating a coup nonviolently. Another one is building alliances. Um, Successful grassroots movements, it's not just one kind of person. Uh, it's not just Democrats. It's not just women. It's not just this. It's not just that. Um, those movements that were successful reached across the spectrum. And so, you know, they had the unions and the LGBTQ people and the this group, right? And so I'm trying to do my climate work in a way that builds alliances and trains more people in nonviolent strategies. I think we need that to deal with climate change. We can see that we can't rely on Congress to do it. All you need is one guy who owns coal mines to get in the way. It's terrible. (laughs) It's the downside of like relying on advocacy when our system is so corrupt with, you know, money from the fossil fuel industry. I want to see people get more comfortable with the idea that we might need to risk getting arrested. Uh, we might need to practice staying calm when the National Guard comes in. I know that might be alarming for some of your listeners, but I actually think we need those skills um, for whatever issue we're working on. Like clearly the right wing has an agenda that they are escalating. You've been doing this for a while and, I wonder how you keep from getting overwhelmed or how do you keep your energy up and stay positive and resilient through these sort of continuing ongoing challenges? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's really, really important. And uh, one of the things that Choose Democracy did, I think, effectively was to kind of calm people down a bit because people would take Trump's rhetoric And then go like, oh, my God, it was like, well, just because he said it doesn't mean it's true, you know, and helping people to take a breath. So in the slides, we had this like breathe slide. (laughs) Uh, But I, I think it's it's true that whatever that practice is for you, for me, it's walking in the woods um, breathing deeply, listening to music and talking to other people. Um, And I think around this stuff. 
really asking yourselves, is this fear or is this what's actually happening? Um, Because I think fear is an understandable reaction to a lot of what's happening in our country, but it can also paralyze us. So for example, there were a lot of people uh, in the lead up to January 6th who wanted to go have a counter protest out of fear. Like, oh my gosh, a thing is happening. We should just show up and counter protest. But our message was, nope, stay home. You know, much more of a, this is a chess game. Let them do their crazy thing. (laughs) And imagine if a bunch of left-wing protesters had shown up and it had become a street battle. That would have been exactly what Trump wanted. Exactly an excuse to call in the National Guard. So again, this reflex of, oh, we just have to go have a march. In some situations, it's the worst thing you could do. So really interrogate, what do you want? Like, just slow down and say, what do you want? And think about what is the best way to get it, rather than being reactive and rather than only doing things out of the moment. You know, you have to balance taking these things very seriously with not going down, you know, the catastrophic thinking. I, it was so clear even after Roe v. Wade, like they just announced, even though we knew it was coming, it was still shocking when it was said out loud. We immediately jumped. I, I was stunned with how fast it went to gay rights are next. And I was like, can you give us a moment to absorb the fact that like half of the country just had their rights taken away before we move on to you know, that, which, you know, may or may not happen. Right. And that's where the thinking about what they could do is only helpful if you're going to strategize about it. So like, if that seems like it really is the next thing, then the local women's group, especially if they're mostly heterosexual cis women should definitely have a meeting with the local LGBTQ group. So we can be in supporting each other. I, I think what you're saying is right about, people just jumping to fear about the next thing instead of slowing down saying like, well, okay, what can we do to turn the tide? How would you describe being Quaker and what it means to you? I had gone to a Quaker high school. I think that planted the seed for me. Um, So that when I left the church during college, I, I apparently told somebody I'll be a Quaker someday, but I'm not ready yet. I don't remember saying that, but (laughs) it sounds right. Uh, And part of what attracted me was actually that Quakers had women ministers from the 1600s. The founding of Quakerism in the 1600s in England was that every person could connect to God directly, whether they were Christian or not, whether they were male or female, um, regardless of color or country, that everyone can connect directly with God and that the churches of the day had really perverted that whole thing and were more interested in their own wealth and power. Um, And in the case of England, supporting the monarchy. (laughs) So they got in trouble very quickly by challenging all the orthodoxy. Actually, Quakers got, thousands of them got thrown in jail in the 1600s and hundreds of them died in jail Um, In New England, Mary Dyer was famously hung for preaching because they they said, you know, for God's sakes, women can't be preachers. You know, they'll have devil babies. They they actually said that any woman who listened to Mary Dyer would have devil babies, you know, just like. um, But 
that so that history was very intriguing to me both the idea that we could correct connect directly to some greater spiritual truth um and that i didn't have to have all the answers that there was sort of an invitation to come try and figure out you know what i believe in a structure in a community that had this history of involvement in social justice but it wasn't like i had to recite a creed so quakerism was partly a, a community for me to bring my questions to uh, and then over time really felt strengthened by um, the, the branch of Quakerism I'm part of um, uses what we call unprogrammed worship where people gather in silence. Um, so Sunday morning is basically an hour of people sitting in silence who then, if you feel moved to speak, if you feel like spirits giving you a message for everyone else, you can stand up and share it. Um, but it's more, more silence than speaking. And a sense, I would say, among many Quakers that um, there is a God or divine force. Not everybody uses the same language around it. Um, there's something in the universe working for the good, but we are not helpless in that, that we are, you know, we are part of that plan to make things better. So I would say, you know, in working on climate change, you know, that I feel a kind of sense of calling about doing this work and a feeling of being supported in a way. Like, I feel like I found this group at the right time. Um, I feel like there have been moments where things have fallen into place where I feel like we're getting a little help from the divine, but it's, they, it, we're not like sitting around waiting for God to stop Exxon. Like, really, that's on us. Whether you're a helper, an advocate, a rebel, whatever your cause, we all do need to do more. Find out more about Eileen's books, her trainings at EileenFlanagan.com. If you're a Vanguard customer who wants to add your voice to the Equates campaign, find them at Equate.com. I'll have all the links in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, join our growing community of women at BetterAngels.Substack.com. Or leave a rating and review on Apple. It really helps us grow. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week.